Welcome to the weekly podcast of Bright Star Bible Church. Thank you for joining us. As you listen to the proclamation of God's Word, our prayer for you is the same prayer Jesus prayed for His church in John 17, 17. Lord, sanctify them in truth. Your Word is truth. Two weeks ago, we began with an overview of the divinely inspired nature of Mark's gospel. And we found that no man could have cleverly devised uh, its content or its structure, that it truly was something special, that it truly was something divine. We learned about who John Mark was, an apprentice of the Apostle Peter and a fellow minister even with the Apostle Paul. And he was the cousin of Barnabas. And believe it or not, there's actually a lot of family in Scripture that sometimes we don't even know our actual cousins or second cousins or whatever. We learned about the unique inspired attributes of the Gospel of Mark. It's the shortest gospel. He uses repetition often. There are, long, there are no long speeches. He moves quickly from point to point. He does not go in chronological order. Rather, he groups subject matter together. He uses, at times, what we have called Markin sandwiches, not just what we call, but what people call Markin sandwiches. Uh, Mark points out a lot of questions that were asked of Jesus, and then Jesus, in turn, answering with a question. And also Jesus asking questions, but when Jesus asked a question, almost every time we find that he was answered with a boastful or arrogant response. And then that was often followed then by a loving rebuke from Jesus as well. As far as what the divine structure communicates, we learned that chapter 1, verses 14 through chapter 8, verses 30, that that's one whole section. So chapter 1, uh, verse 14, all the way through chapter 8, verse 30, that's one whole section of Mark that has a major point that communicates some something and what it communicates what it focuses on is the identity of Jesus Christ his miracles and then once we read uh, in chapter 8 verse 31 through the end of chapter 10 again that's chapter 8 verse 31 on through the end of chapter 10 we see that discipleship is defined by Jesus based on who Jesus is and what Jesus came to do and what was Christ's mission and attitude? And we also found that there are these statements, these really uh, powerful statements that Jesus made that communicates that whole section very clearly. And in chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus defines discipleship not only for them but for us. And here's what he says. This is the definition of discipleship. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So that's, that is the thrust of that whole section. And just in case anyone thought that they were exempt from that call of discipleship and what it means to be a true disciple, um, who God is, you know, Jesus is God in the flesh, and we know this, but it is even clarified further in Mark 10, 45. He clarifies that he himself came to do the Father's will, and here's what he says, quote, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So 
just in case any of us are think that we're extra special and we're exempt from that call of laying down our life, Jesus said, I, essentially, I'm God in the flesh, and that's my calling too. I'm here to do the will of my Father. And that was, the, as I said, the call of discipleship then, and it is the call of discipleship now, even in our day and time. It's, it's the same thing. And once you recognize who Christ Jesus really is, then you join him on his mission in this life and you understand you're called to do whatever he calls you to do um, no matter what it costs you and our hearts then in light of that uh, truth our hearts are exposed before God with that call of come follow me and the question is will each and every one of us come follow him the way his disciples did make no mistake the cost of true discipleship it leads to a cross. It leads to dying to self, giving yourself, as Scripture tells us, as a living sacrifice. And for many in the world today, folks, we live in a time when you might think that, that Christians were killed more in, in ages past, but there are more people today being murdered for the gospel of Jesus Christ and martyred than there has ever been in the history of the world. And uh, it's going on as the gospel spreads, then the enemy tries to destroy the spreading of the gospel and we see that obviously the gospel can't be defeated god's plan will prevail amen last week then we did a continued overview but this was more of a bird's eye view of how the gospel of mark fits into god's grand design and and we looked at scripture basically from cover to cover from genesis to revelation okay considering the beginning and the account of creation and God's design. And then we looked at the book of Job as kind of the prologue to the entire Bible that kind of sets up the story. And Job tells us what life was like after the fall and after the flood. And so we asked the questions, who were at creation and in the book of Job, who were the beings involved? Who, who were the, the, the beings that God created that were involved in this whole story and God's overarching plan? And we find that it's our holy, sovereign God. It is Satan, a fallen spiritual being, who then manipulated and deceived man, and man fell. Okay? And then we have the stage is broken creation. We live in a broken world. Sin cracked creation. And we find that in Romans that Paul says the earth groans. It groans waiting for the return of the Creator to come back and renew it once again. And we saw that when Jesus came in the gospel, he came and he purposefully did miracles to prove that he was the creator. And each miracle that Jesus did pointed back to the way the world was at the time of creation and how the world will be once again when Christ returns, as Romans says, to, uh, to renew all things and even during his millennial reign and, of course, the eternal state, Christ comes to seek and came to seek and save that which was lost. It was all lost at the beginning. We see the picture of the fall in, in man's uh, devastating state and, and the devastating state of uh, the earth after the flood and fallen creation. And we see that in all of that, this, Christ is the answer. Jesus is the answer. He was the answer to all of Job's questions. And when Job had the audacity to ask, why me, why now, why this? Jesus said, you want to know the answer? Because me, 
because I am, because this is my will, and I'm the answer in all of that, no matter what you face, and the answer is the same for you today. No matter what you face, Christ is the answer. Amen? The sovereign creator. He has power over the wind and waves, and we see this in the gospel. He walks on the water. He's the great physician who has power over all sickness and disease. He is the provider, the sustainer, who has the power to multiply fish and bread. He is the Lord of lords, the creator of principalities and all powers, who commands the demons to flee from men and cast them into swine. And every miracle, as I said, communicated who Christ really is and what he came to do. And Mark is telling us right here, right now at the beginning, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Powerful. This is it. God's redemptive plan set in motion. It's being finished. It's being completed. And we have yet to see, folks, the fullness of that completion of that plan, the consummation when he makes all things new. So we need to understand where we are in the grand scheme of things. We're still in the period of redemption and we long and look ahead for that day of full and total restoration when all things are made new. Now we're actually going to start looking at our text itself this morning. And if you would stand to your feet as we read the word of God, we're in Mark chapter 1 and we're going to go through verses 1 through 6 today. I had planned on doing a little larger chunk, but... It was getting a little long, and so I shortened it, and that's where we're going to be. Mark 1, 1 through 6. This is the Word of God. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the region of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. And John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and was eating locusts and wild honey. Now I've entitled this message today, The Promise and the Prophet. The promise and the prophet. And as I have laid this foundation, as we begin to look at that first verse once again, uh, last week we also spoke about the word gospel and what that word means. And that it is essentially the gospel is reconciling fallen man back to a holy God. That's the gospel, the overarching most broad sense of what that word means. And in that day and time, in their culture, both Jews and Gentiles understood that term gospel and the Jews connected it with the Old Testament and they believed you may be seated I'm sorry you guys thought you were gonna have to stand that whole time the Jews connected it to the Old Testament and they knew that it pointed to their ultimate salvation and the ultimate salvation of God's people through the coming messianic king okay but what about the Gentiles How did they understand this term gospel? Well, interestingly, um, it seems that this idea of the Messiah or this coming king had cross-pollinated into the minds and hearts and culture of the Gentiles because there has been a Roman inscription found dating back to 9 BC, and I'm I'm sure that's give or take for a few years, but it speaks of the birth of Caesar Augustus, okay? 
And I'm struck by how close this sounds to the proclamation of the angel concerning Christ's birth when he proclaimed of the coming king at that time. But here's what it says, and you could try to follow this. It's, it's a little difficult to follow, but I think you'll, you'll see little pieces and parts of it that seem familiar. Whereas the providence which has ordered the whole of our life, showing concern and zeal, has ordained the most perfect consummation for human life by giving to it Augustus, by filling him with virtue for doing the work of a benefactor among men, and by sending him, as it were, as a savior for us and those who come after us to make war to cease, to create order everywhere, and whereas the birthday of the god Augustus was the beginning of the world of the glad tidings that have come to men through him. How nuts is that? That there's this secular Roman inscription that was found that almost coincides with that pronouncement of the birth of Christ. So even to Rome, the word gospel spoke of a triumph or arrival of a coming king or even in their godless society, this idea of this emperor worship, which they kind of caught on that if we make our leaders gods, it's a lot easier to rule the people, right? And Mark is writing this beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to the Jews and Gentiles, and it communicates this. Mark's saying, I am presenting the good news of the king who's coming, and this, ki this king transcends every other king. He is the king of glory. He's not just one king in a line of many kings in human history. He is the sovereign king of all creation and the king of all human history. And that's what Mark is communicating. In fact, the name Jesus, you look at this first verse, if we zero in on the name Jesus, is a Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua, which is derived from the name Yeshua. And it actually means Yahweh is salvation. Now, think about that for a moment. His name means God is our salvation. Christ in the flesh is our salvation. And of course that was purposeful in the mind of God because in Matthew chapter 1 verse 21, Matthew chapter 1 verse 21, Joseph was actually told by Gabriel to name his son Jesus because it means this. It means, quote, for he will save his people from their sins. Then Mark adds the word right after Jesus. He adds the word Christ. So we're digging in here. He adds the word Christ to the name Jesus, and that brings even more clarity about who he is. The Christ was known by the Jews as the ultimate deliverer and ruler, the long-awaited Messiah. And this is an explicit reference to the promised Savior of Israel. And then to clarify even further, leaving no doubt of whom he's introducing, Mark calls Jesus, quote, the Son of God, the Son of God. And this title obviously speaks of Jesus' divine lineage, that he is, he is God in the flesh. He is of one nature, co-equal and co-eternal with God the Father. And in this first line, Mark again stresses this is the beginning of this gospel because this person who is now walking on earth in the flesh, the person and work of Jesus Christ will change human history forever. How incredible is this moment in time? In this section of Mark's gospel, there's a pretty clear outline within the text. 
First, in verses 2 through 3, we read of the promised Messiah, or the promise. The promised Messiah goes all the way back in the Old Testament. In verse, verses 4 through 6, we see this proclaiming prophet, okay? And then in verses 7 through 8, we see the preeminent king. And we'll get there in a couple weeks, or I mean next week, but this week we're going to hang out in verses 2 through 3 and 4 through 6. And let, as we dig into the verses 2 through 3, let's read again of, of this promise or the promised Messiah. It says, As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. And Mark continues by taking us back to the Old Testament prophecies concerning uh, one of the well-known prophetic signs of the Messiah, and that is this forerunner, okay? This one who would come before the Messiah. And, and you have to understand, though, in their culture back in those days and throughout human history, before a visit, rulers or kings would often send a herald out in front of them to prepare the way uh, and to announce their soon arrival, that they were on their way. And this prophecy has connections not only to Isaiah, as mentioned in the text itself, but also to Malachi and the book of Exodus. And those three references made it clear that before the Messiah comes on the scene, there will be a forerunner, a prophet, a herald who will prepare the way and announce the coming king. And by connecting this forerunner to the Old Testament prophecies, he's saying that this is not a newly hatched plan this is the one. This is the Messiah, the King of Kings. The one solution to man's sin. The one who has been promised as far back, look, as far back as Genesis 3, 16 and 17, when he says, he will crush Satan's head and Satan will bruise his heel. One of the first prophecies about the coming Messiah. Malachi 3.1. Malachi 3.1 is mentioned here or quoted here. And it says this, Behold, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. Now Malachi, if you turn to Malachi, you will see that he goes on to say uh, this, And the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple. So if we were to continue on that, that uh, prophecy that's quoted here in Mark, you would find that that's what it says. And the Lord you seek will suddenly come to his temple. So we have two prophecies mentioned here. First, a forerunner, a messenger, and then the Messiah who would suddenly go to his temple. And I find it interesting that the first thing that Jesus did in his ministry after being baptized was he went to the temple and he cleansed the temple of the money changers. He immediately went to the temple and, and cleansed the temple, God's house, of the money changers. And if you want to read about that, you can go to John 2, and that's verses 13 through 22. John 2, verses 13 through 22. This was also, um, this surprised me because uh, about five years ago I found this out, that he cleansed the temple two different times, one at the beginning of his ministry and one at the end of his ministry. So they were like bookends to Christ's ministry. He cleansed the temple and which is what he's doing. What does he do to us now? He cleanses the temple. He's sanctifying us. He's transforming us into his image. He's renewing our mind. But before that, uh, as we get back to our text, the forerunner would come to prepare the way. So how would a forerunner prepare the way? 
Well, he did so in a couple ways. One was to literally prepare the road uh, to clear it of any obstructions, okay? So as the king would make their way, he wanted to make sure that the roads were clear, uh, there was no danger, uh, that there were no obstructions on the roadway. If there were fallen trees, if the road was somehow impassable, the king's herald and the party that was accompanying the king's herald would take the time to remove those things in preparation for the king to come. In addition, as I said before, the herald would make a clear call for everyone in that area or in that province or in that city to prepare themselves for the arrival of royalty. He would prepare the roads, but he would also tell them to prepare themselves. In other words, get your act together. The king is coming. Okay. And Mark references Isaiah 40, verse 3, Isaiah 40, verse 3, when he says this, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. So how then did this forerunner fulfill that job description as the herald, as the forerunner? How did he particularly fulfill these prophecies? Well, first of all, he was very clearly a messenger sent by God to prepare the way. He was the Messiah's herald, and he made the road ready. He made the paths straight. But how? Well, he wasn't, we know he wasn't removing literal obstructions from roadways, uh, right? Like cutting away trees and moving boulders and things like that because he was expecting Jesus to come. That's not what he did. But he was removing obstructions between the coming Messiah and the salvation of his people. He was removing whatever stood in their way. And what were the things that were standing in their way? Man-made religion, hardened hearts, unbelief, the things that blocked their way to the truth in understanding who the Messiah was and in fact, their sins, their sins that they, John was telling them, you must repent of. So he was making the paths straight. This herald was proclaiming, crying in the wilderness, you must repent, you must turn away from your crooked path. Prepare yourselves in order to have the eyes to see and ears to hear Purify yourself, be baptized, get yourself ready, get your act together. The king of kings is coming. That's how he was preparing the way and making the path straight. And I've imagined this man in my life hundreds of times crying out in the desert, so passionate about his calling and his message, groaning, pleading with the people, sinners, turn away from your sin, from your crooked paths, and seek the straight path that leads to your Savior, the Messiah, Jesus. John the Baptist was the final Old Testament prophet. He was the final Old Testament prophet. And this was a divine transition between what had been promised and what had now come, what had arrived. Salvation is here. God is dwelling among his people. Amen. His eyes saw the realization of the long-awaited promise. And it's interesting to see here that John the Baptist, he didn't work miracles. He did no miracles whatsoever. The herald took nothing for himself. His purpose 
was to point to the Messiah and proclaim the coming of the Messiah and nothing more. What did he famously say? He, I must decrease so that he may increase. Amen? The world has never seen a prophet or a forerunner, a herald like John the Baptist, which is fitting because no one had ever seen a king like Jesus. Next, we want to look at verses 4 through 6. Verses 4 through 6. And this concerns the, the proclaiming prophet. Beginning in verse 4. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the region of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. And John was clothed with camel's hair, and wore a leather belt around his waist, and was eating locusts and wild honey. So Mark begins by referencing the Old Testament prophecies concerning the forerunner, and then he names him by name, John the Baptizer. And from our perspective, this sets him apart in Scripture from any of the other Johns, and there's many of them. The writer of this book, of the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, his name is actually John Mark. We know there was the Apostle John, and, and so sometimes you can read these names, and there are various different Jameses, and, and you know, so it can, it's nice to be able to distinguish John the baptizer from the other Johns. But that's not the only way that it sets him apart. Um, John came from the wilderness. And you can't hear the word wilderness without recalling the Old Testament and all the things that the Israelites went through as God first set the nation of Israel aside and they were brought into Egypt first under safeguard under the leadership of Joseph, but then as they stayed there for that period of time, the Pharaoh forgot Joseph, and the Pharaoh forgot Joseph's God, and soon we find that the nation of Israel, that God's people, were in slavery. And they were set free, and God led them out into the wilderness. And the wilderness, as I said, um, is where at a young, probably a very young age, John's elderly parents, Zacharias and Elizabeth, that they took him probably because it's likely that they orphaned him at a young age, being so old when they had him. I have read that his parents, Zacharias and Elizabeth, um, were potentially part of this conservative Jewish religious sect called the Essenes that were out in the wilderness, out in the desert. And... Um, John the Baptist also came from a line of priests. His father, Zacharias, was a priest. And if you go back and read of, um, of his supernatural circumstances surrounding his birth, you'll see that story and how his father was faithless at first and he was struck to be mute and couldn't speak. Uh, you should go back and read that if you get an opportunity. So John the Baptist came from a line of priests, but he himself was a prophet. As I said, the final prophet of the Old Testament. And he reached out to the Jewish people by removing himself from the Jewish culture. And there are times that that's necessary to remove ourselves from the, from the culture around us. But John had taken what is called a Nazarite vow, which means he abstained from wine 
and all other grape products, okay, so even vinegar that they made from grapes, even eating grapes themselves, he couldn't eat of any fruit of the vine, okay? And that was part of the Nazarite vow. He also never cut the hair on his head. You're familiar with the Old Testament. Uh, uh, Samson also took a Nazarite vow. Um, he was also not allowed to become ritually impure by ever having contact with a dead body, a corpse, or even with a grave. So he was never to touch or take part in any sort of burial or, or touch a body or a grave at all. His life was very different than the life of Jesus. His ministry was very different than the ministry of Jesus. His life was one of separation and purity and having very little. And John the Baptist died a prophet's death. The Jews ritual, I'm sorry, ritualistically baptized themselves often. They had these baptistries called mikvahs, and they were everywhere, and they had to baptize themselves before they went into the temple. And so this was something that the Jews were very familiar with, baptizing all the time to, to uh, cleanse themselves. But John was saying, this is a new baptism. This baptism is a baptism of repentance, and it was a one and done baptism. So John's crying out for the Jews to repent and be baptized for the remission of sins. To those folks in that day, this was a radical thing that was going on. Why? Well, here's what you have to understand about the Jews. The Jews thought very highly of themselves. After all, they were God's chosen people, His holy nation. They were children of Abraham. And God gave them the Holy Scriptures. And they had all this history that goes all the way back to the beginning of time, to creation itself. So for them to repent of their sins and be baptized meant that they would have to humble themselves greatly. That they would have to see themselves differently. They would have to see themselves as no more fit for God's kingdom than the pagan Gentiles to whom they constantly looked down their nose. Are you beginning to understand why this was so different? So in Matthew 3, 9 through 10, John the baptizer made this statement to some of the scribes and Pharisees who came out to hear him preach. He says, Do not assume that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. So he's pointing right to that, that mentality and that arrogance in their heart. He's saying, he says, for I tell you that God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. And then he says this, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is being cut down and thrown into the fire. So he takes their mentality from this children of Abraham, we're God's holy nation, back to this singular thing. No, it, it's all about you now and about the condition of your heart. And if you are a single tree or branch that does not bear good fruit, you will be cut off and thrown into the fire. You cannot, you cannot any longer live under the shelter of this attitude, of this arrogance that proclaims we are children of Abraham, we are Israel, we are the Jews, we are God's people. Do you understand? And so John was really laying the axe to that mentality in that culture. And John's uh, passionate sermons were uh, confronting the Jewish people, forcing them to open their eyes to this spiritual reality. And 
their pride and he had to get through to them. And before they could hear or understand and believe the good news of salvation from Jesus and his disciples who were next to come on the scene, in contrast, they had to hear the bad news of their own fallenness and depravity and wickedness. Does that sound familiar to anyone this morning? Anyway, it says here, All the region of Judea was going out to him and all the people of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. Now, in this case, all doesn't actually mean each and every person that lived in the city of Jerusalem went out to John the Baptist and was baptized. Not every single soul in the region of Judea went out and and heard John preach and was baptized. It means a great number of the people went out to him, and it was a really, really, really big deal in that day and time to point... uh, out that the scribes and Pharisees, to the point, I'm sorry, to the point that the scribes and Pharisees had to take notice of what was going on because they were kind of living comfortably and all of a sudden here comes this crazy disruptor out in the wilderness baptizing people and preaching in a way that we've not ever heard a prophet preach, okay? So folks, what was going on out there in the wilderness at the hands of John the baptizer, it had all the markings of revival, But was it a true revival? Well, for some it was, for others it wasn't. And I believe that obviously many, many were genuinely moved and their paths were made straight by this prophet. Their hearts were made right in preparation for the coming king. But for many of them, the experience was superficial. Now, how do I know that? Well, because this Revival in the desert of which so many of the nation of Israel clamored to hear John's teaching and then be followed up uh, with baptism, many of these same exact people would outright reject the Messiah to whom John was pointing them to. Many of them walked away from Jesus. If you remember his hard teaching in John chapter 6, in John chapter 6 when he was talking about you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood, and as a result... Here's what it says, quote, they went away and were not walking with him anymore. They rejected the Messiah based solely upon his teaching. Perhaps, perhaps some of these very same people were from Jerusalem and just a few short years later were part of that very mob that cried out, crucify him. An emotional experience doesn't always translate the calling of genuine disciples. And that certainly was the case for many of these people at this time. If we read the other accounts of the life and times of John the Baptist, we'll find fascinating stories, as I said, about his supernatural birth and those circumstances, about his being filled with the Holy Spirit while he was yet in his mother's womb. You want an argument against abortion? There you go. While he was in his mother's womb, He was filled with the Holy Spirit and he leapt in the presence of uh, Mary when Christ was in her womb. And um, Jesus called his cousin John the Baptist the greatest man ever born up until that time. Now just think about that for a minute. What a big deal this is that this forerunner is on the scene. And here Mark is very succinct in his description of the baptizer in verse 6. He says, quote, John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist 
and was eating locusts and wild honey. Now, why would we care about what John was wearing or eating? Why is this important to the conversation? Why is this outlined in the text? Because hidden in his wardrobe and his dietary restrictions, there is a truth communicated about who he really is. This hairy outer robe made of camel skin covered in coarse camel's hair drawn at the waist by this gnarly rough leather belt. This recalled the Old Testament prophets and in the minds of the Jews designated John the Baptist as a hardcore prophet, not unlike the Old Testament prophets that they'd read about all their lives but had never seen. And when a prophet speaks, his words should be heeded. That is, in the Old Testament account, his words should be heeded until they decide they get angry with him and they kill him. That's what they usually did with the prophets. But in this case, the people took him seriously. The prophet Elijah in the Old Testament wore very similar clothing. In 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8, 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8, the description of Elijah is this. He was a hairy man with a leather girdle bound about his loins. So is this a coincidence that we have this uh, connection of this, you know, kind of hairy persona uh, and this wardrobe, this leather belt, this connected him to these Old Testament prophets in the mind. And not only that, but specifically to Elijah. And if you read, um, boy, I don't, I don't have it written down here, the actual reference. I'm sorry, but maybe somebody can find it and you're more than welcome to yell it out. But I have beginning in verse 11 through 15. Oh, here we go. In Matthew 11, 11 through 14, Matthew 11, 11 through 14, here's what we read about John the Baptist. Truly I say to you, among, the, among those born of women, there has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. This is Jesus talking about his cousin. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and violent men take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you're willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So does this mean that John the Baptist is actually Elijah reincarnated? Absolutely not. That's not what he's saying here. It means that God has purposefully connected the two prophets with several similarities for prophetic purposes so that we can understand. In fact, when we read of the account of the angel Gabriel announcing the birth of John the baptizer to his father Zacharias, who, as I said, again was a priest, here's what Gabriel said. He says, "...for he will be great in the sight of the Lord." He will not drink any wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. So here we see the reference of many of those who came out to hear him preach and were baptized. It was a real, it was the real deal. But for many, it was not. But it says, He will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. He actually connects the two. To turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children 
and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So he makes the connection to the Old Testament prophet Elijah. He explains to you at the announcement of John the Baptist's birth that he is there um, to basically prepare the way and, and make ready the hearts of the people to receive the Messiah. Now, obviously, we have to get to John's diet here. He ate locusts and wild honey. And according to the law of Moses, eating locusts was acceptable. So it was okay that they ate locusts. And I read up on this a little bit. I've never eaten a locust or a grasshopper. I, anybody in the room eating a locust or a grasshopper? Okay, well, we'll mark that down for the next potluck that we have. Um, they're very high in protein. And uh, if you wonder what a locust would taste like, here's what I found. They have a nutty, green, almost peeled shrimp look, and the taste and texture is similar to that of crustaceans. So if you hate seafood, more than likely you're going to hate eating a grasshopper or, or a cicada, okay? But in their day, they would remove the wings and the legs, and they would roast them sometimes. They would dry them, and then they would grind them up, and they would actually bake them into bread. So they're getting more protein in the bread as they eat. And I see some of you back there like, hey, that sounds pretty good. I'm up for that. So, um, you know, boil them, mash them, stick them in a stew, right? Yeah. Just kidding about that last part. That's just a movie quote there. Um, what goes better with savory roasted locusts than sweet wild honey, right? I mean, if, if that was what you were restric restricted to in your diet, you would want some contrast in your diet there. And I am certain the sight of this desert prophet uh, knowing who he was, knowing how he lived, was just shocking to see. Thick, leathery skin, darkened by the sun, long, unkempt uh, hair. Bottom line is, folks, John the Baptist had no desire to indulge in the comforts of fine living. His life was consecrated. His mission was laser-focused. His lifestyle, again, was so radically different from that of any of the other, other Jewish leaders and religious leaders uh, that all of those people were familiar with. They were wealthy. They lived in nice homes. They wore nice clothes. They were sophisticated, privileged. And each of them, these religious leaders, were afforded all of the comforts that their day allowed them to have. And in the minds of the people, this guy crying out in the wilderness called into question the validity of the religious usual suspects that all these people were used to, these scribes and Pharisees, the, the, the vision of, who, of what re, uh, religion should be and spirituality should be. All of a sudden, this man in the wilderness crying so passionate and looking so different and living so different called into question, well, wait a second, who's the real McCoy Who's the real spiritual leader here? Is it the scribes and the Pharisees? Or is it this prophet crying out in the desert? What can we take from this contrast this morning? What timeless truths are tucked away in these passages for us this morning? Well, first of all, we should always be discerning. Always be discerning and test all things. And this is testing people and this is testing circumstances. Just because someone is claiming there is a revival taking place, that doesn't mean that there's a revival taking place. Just because someone calls themselves a man or woman of God, 
It doesn't mean that they're a man or woman of God. And we shouldn't be too quick to judge a book by its cover. We shouldn't be too quick to judge authenticity of a move of God or a man of God simply by observing the circumstances in the moment. All right? The proof will always be manifested by the purposes of God. And, and Jesus himself said, you will know them by their fruit. So simply put, no one knows until the fruit grows. So in the moment, you cannot make a decision. You have to wait and see what the genuine fruit or lack of fruit comes of the movement or the man. And unfortunately for some of these men and women who are self-proclaimed prophets and apostles and, and, and godly men, they're going to have a rude awakening when they stand before Christ. And he says to them, Depart from me, for I never knew you. Many who traveled into the desert to hear John the baptizer preach and then were baptized, we know that they just got dunked, that it was just a religious act, okay? And they were part of this bandwagon. They were part of this uprising, this trend, the emotional swell. But when it came to, to paying the cost of being a true disciple, their hearts were exposed and they rejected the very Lamb of God who came to take away their sin. So the emotion was not enough. And not all genuine men of God looked the same. There were certainly differences, as I mentioned before, between John the Baptist's ministry and the ministry of his cousin Jesus. And when it came to the end, they both willingly died and suffered the cost of being a true disciple or being uh, walking out in the will of God in order to accomplish God's will, they both laid their lives down, even though their lives and their ministry looked very different. You can kind of understand why John the Baptist sent his men to ask Jesus and his disciples, are you the one or should we look for another? Why would he question that? Well, here I am. I don't drink. I've lived a life in the desert, a hard life totally consecrated for the Lord, set apart. And here's Jesus sitting with tax collectors and sinners, drinking wine. Like, I'm sure in his mind, he had some major questions. And he wanted to know. I just want to understand. Are you the one or should we look for another? And I believe that he knew in his heart of hearts that Jesus was the one. And Jesus reiterated to him, the blind see... The cripple walk. I mean, he, he proved who he was. But here's what I want for our modern day application. One thing that we can be sure of, if a pastor's living the high life and squandering money, I mean, just very visibly and openly squandering money on himself, flaunting his wealth, pumping up his celebrity status, if it ever comes to it, it's highly, it's highly unlikely that those men would lay down their very lives when it seems they can't even lay down their ego. When what is most important to them is how other people see them and that they maintain this celebrity status in the eyes of the people. Be discerning, people. Be watchful. Be very, very careful. Scripture teaches over and over again that there will be many wolves who come in sheep's clothing 
and they will not spare the flock. We've covered Mark's introduction to the promised Messiah and the proclaiming prophet, and next week we're going to pick up right here in this passage we'll discover the glory of this preeminent king. Thanks again for joining us. If you'd like to visit us in person, we meet at 1015 every Sunday morning at the Glenpool Conference Center. You are always welcome.